coming up on this episode of Belief Hole. Every collection of weirdness needs a hitchhiker story. Right. Such as the red-headed hitchhiker. Yeah. Bridgewater Triangle is not a stranger to this phenomenon. And the creepy thing about this character, there's always this maniacal laughter or the eerie smile. You know, it just makes it just that extra bit of creepiness. That'd be terrifying. What are you so happy about? You're dead. You're dead. You're dead. I just can't get the Ewok image out of my head. Very similar. Logical. <laughs> That's pretty good. But basically a small, kind of scrawny, hairy, pot-bellied, fur-covered creature. What? Your eyes are quite large in comparison to the size of the head. Oh. This is typically of nocturnal right, animals. Right, 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 right. You start to think about these ideas of invisible entities in the forest. It all kind of ties in with the Puckwudgie idea. Yeah. In March 1639, a luminous object seemed to play zigzag games in the sky. Its movements resembled those of a pig trying to avoid the captcha. <laughs> That's oh man. The account is almost exactly like a UFO that I saw. Right, the jumping in the sky. Yeah, yeah the zigzagging. How old is this? That's from 16... 1639. 39, and you saw it in 2011? Yeah, somewhere in there. I mean, it's just crazy the similarities. Obviously, it wasn't military back then. Right. gotta be like another dimensional aspect to him because I feel like science would have run into these at some point. Right. Yeah. Some some hunter would have trapped it. Yeah. But maybe they just have the ability to like disappear. Or are they just very good at hiding? Well, that's the lore is that there is the invisibility aspect to it. There are decently sized animals that live in smaller areas. Right. So it's not crazy to imagine that there are things that have retreated and survived in small pockets around the world. Right. I mean, who knows? Are there little hairy puckawudgies out there? Backing people in, maybe. There is something happening in the Bridgewater Triangle. But, of course, it extends beyond that, you know. The boundary bleeds. Conspiracy. Synchronicity. Sasquatch. Homunculus. Alien races. Satanism in Hollywood. MK Ultra. Tartaria. There's like a whole, I've been watching this one guy. That, Close the door, in. Jury. Close your door. What's the, uh. Inner Earth. Disagreements. Ghost Dad. <laughs> I like that movie. Dogman. Bohemian Grove. Corey Feldman. Magicians are demons. Specters. Spirits. Sleep paralysis. Strange disappearances. Sky whale phenomena. Yes. Alternative history. Shadow people. Shh, quiet, I'm trying to say words with the mouth. It's getting dicey out there. Poltergeists. That's cool. Anunnaki. What is the moon? <laughs> Elf towers. I would never talk about it. That's old. Y2K. Cover ups. Apocalyptic catastrophe. Vampire. Well, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Welcome into the hole. I'm Chris, and these are my brothers, John. Hello. And Jeremy. Hello, hello, everybody. Nice to be with you again on this blustery day. Mm-hmm. Blustery indeed. Yeah, it's funny because we were researching for the Bridgewater Triangle last night up to like 5 a.m., and that's when the winds came in. It did feel like paranormal. Kind of. Oh, yeah. It was very spooky when I woke up at like five. So you were waking up. We just got done researching yeah. and trying to go to bed. But it felt like, I don't even know, dude. It felt like some post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Winds from all directions. Everything's just silent outside except for these whipping Owling. winds. It sounded like the ocean from inside our apartment. Yeah. It really did feel like it was a hurricane almost. Mm -hmm. Winds up to like 65 miles an hour. Yeah. That's no slouchy wind. No, right sir. There. 
Yeah, we had to move our cars because we have a weird parking situation right now where we are. But I remember <laughs> walking back to our building and literally like moving forward and then the wind pushed me back mm-hmm. and then it pushing me forward. Mm-hmm. I was looking for funnel clouds. Yeah, the one reassuring thing is looking up in the sky, it was actually a beautiful night. The clouds were moving, but not super fast. And there wasn't any, there was nothing to yeah, indicate no, a tornado no or storms, anything. but it did feel like hurricane force winds out there. It's kind of weird. Spring in Ohio, should be tornadoes coming. Yep. There's nothing worse than waking up in the middle of the night to a tornado siren. Oh my God, yeah. So freaky. We had this really bad storm last year. I remember that. But I remember taking Jake down to the basement and it was just like unbelievable hail, like pounding that metal, you know, cellar door. Oh yeah. And it was just freaky, dude. And then the side, the tornado sirens go off and I'm like, this is it. There's going to be a tornado. Yeah. Cellar door, John. You know, it's the most beautiful word in the English language. Yeah, that's dumb. <laughs> that's like the dumbest part in the entire movie. <laughs> Donnie Darko. That's so objective, right? <laughs> cellar door. It's, it sounds like so pretentious too. Yeah. Donnie Darko. Guys, that's Drew Barrymore, right? That is a great movie, though. That's a great movie. Classic. But yes, if you don't know, in that movie, the teacher in that film says that the most beautiful word is cellar door. What's cellar door? This famous linguist once said that of all the phrases in the English language, of all the endless combinations of words in all of history, that cellar door is the most beautiful. I got to say this story real quick because I just remember coming over to your house, John, this past summer, and I was dropping something off. You forgot I was coming. And I walk up to your front door and it's like kind of cracked or I or was opening it. And I just hear that. And I hear Donnie Darko playing. And then I'm like, hello. And you jump down from the sky in your underwear, covered in sweat because you're bounding on your trampoline in the house. And you're watching Donnie Darko. So I always remember Donnie Darko with John jumping from the sky in his I was underwear. doing my exercises. You have this giant childlike grin on your face. Like, hello. Forgot you were coming. The tainted memory. Yeah, it is always weird. It's happened a couple of times because the trampoline is right downstairs in front of my front door. And sometimes people have like come and knock on the door and they can see inside me jumping up and down. I'm like, what do they think? Like FedEx or... The naked man rebounding. Naked. Almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last time you had your underwear on. They're like really? boxers. They're like... No, nah, they're briefs. You had briefs on when I came in. Yeah, no, they're they're no. fun briefs. <laughs> they're like bright yeah, colors. They're like maroon, maybe. Bright color. I don't Ninja bright turtles. Colors. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that's a little, little exaggeration. It's a little much for our audience to... Yes. Anyway, speaking of tornadoes, right? Tornadoes can make the day go dark. Right out of nowhere. Sky. Well, that's interestingly a phenomenon that happens in the Bridgewater Triangle. Doesn't that happen everywhere? Because... It's weather. It's not weather. That's the thing. Oh, oh. Hunters, for instance, have reported being out in the swamp middle of the day of the Huckamuck Swamp, and then suddenly out of nowhere, it becomes dark, like nighttime. Interesting. I hadn't read that. Yeah. There have been reports of people becoming easily confused Did in the swamp. Did you say swamp? Yes. Oh, there So it what is. is this place we're talking about, Jeremy? Okay, yeah. So I guess now, I, now we're going to not talk about the swamp. <laughs> we'll talk about the Bridgewater okay. Triangle. I'm confused. I thought you wanted swamp. Yeah. No. Well, I, I didn't mean to get into the swamp stuff yet. Okay, so I'm going to back up a second here, guys. So thanks to Greg Willis for suggesting this topic. Thanks, Greg. Uh, It is one of those triangle locations that seems to harness this energy, this special energy. Kind of reminds me of Missing 411. Or Skinwalker Ranch. There's a a certain area where sometimes these, just all these things happen. Exactly. A window area. Energies seem to congregate in these places. And I think it's interesting because the triangle gets pointed out because it's it's a fun and easy way to sort of put borders around an area where a lot of crazy stuff happens. Right. But it's, I think, arbitrary. The shape, exactly. It does sort of form, and I'm sure we'll get into Lauren Coleman and how he kind of came up with the triangle shape in that area. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is it is a defined area because Lauren Coleman was the first fella to notice. He's a famous cryptozoologist, but he coined the term 
Bridgewater Triangle back in the 70s when he wrote his book, Mysterious America. Oh, it was in the 70s. Yeah. And so he basically said, like, he noticed that this region, he was getting a lot of reports, right? Yeah. He kind of pointed out a region just to define this area. It's a 200 square mile area in southeastern Massachusetts that's identified as having three points. And these points are the towns that make up the apexes of the triangle. And those three official points are the town of Abington to the north, Rehoboth to the southwest, and Freetown to the southeast. It's funny. I feel like I know these places now just from doing all the, the research into it. Yeah. I feel like I've been to each of these little towns within this triangle. Yeah. And each of these towns have different lore and everything inside the triangle. It's kind of a convenient shape that he noticed in this pattern of the phenomena he was reporting in the 70s. Right. And it alludes to the Bermuda Triangle, the Great Lakes right. Triangle. But of course it extends beyond that. You know, the boundary bleeds. But yeah, this area, it's been troubled for a long time. There's a bloody, gory past with the first Indian War, King Philip's War. We'll get to that in a second. The very first Indian War. Yeah, hmm. that's, that's what it's referred to as besides King Philip's War. There's a few names for it, but there's been a lot of trauma, a lot of blood in the earth there. I know that I've heard some paranormal researchers suggest that that could be a cause for a lot of the strange activity that could create a beacon for sort of strange, dark energy, potentially. Exactly. Could open up a window area, which, like John said, this area is. I also like the idea that the inverse is true, where because of the energy in that area, for whatever ancient reason, you might have these bizarre occurrences culminating in this area. So it yeah. could be, you know, the chicken or the egg situation. Right. Oh, yeah. Some have suggested that that war that began, that it was destined to happen because maybe the area itself had an energy previous to that even occurring. But a lot of people point to the war as being... And of course, the war being the bloodiest. It was such a devastating war. That's going to add to the dark energy of this place. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into that in a second. Let me just break down a few of the phenomena that we might be seeing here in the swamp. So as in any window area, you're going to have the usual, right? The Bigfooty. Bigfoots. Well done. Oh, he's walking. Light steps for the Bigfoots. No, that's not a... <laughs> Bigfoot step. Just a, I called for a Bigfoot sound. Foot. moving snake in the water. Give me a Bigfoot sound. So there we have a big frog. You got a better Bigfoot. <laughs> That's a Bigfoot. Okay, so we got the Bigfoot, right? The Sasquatch crawling around the swamps. Ooh, doing his whoops and wood knocks. And of course, associated with Bigfoot, you see UFO activity a lot, right? Lights in the sky. Yeah, pretty common here. Mm -hmm. Your ghost lights, your will-o'-wisp type activity, that's also here. But not only that, it's branched out into a bizarre, veritable smorgasbord of paranormal phenomena. We've got ghost lights, demon dogs, mm, the puckawudgies. Oh yeah, we'll be getting to those, which are the little people of the Wampanoag, kind of a, a small dwarfish entity with certain abilities um, yeah, that we'll get into. We touched on them a little bit with our Terrorized by Gnomes episode, but now we're going to get a chance to really get into the Pucka Wedges. Yeah, scrape into them a little bit. Um, and of course, as any area that has this kind of devastating native past with brush-ups with colonists, that type of thing, we'll see stories of Native American spirits, oversized snakes. Yeah, that one doesn't seem that interesting. I mean, snakes are scary, well, but... Well, snakes the size of stovepipes. like... In Anaconda. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about snakes the size of stovepipes, man. Stovepipes are big. I don't know yeah. if you've been around a stovepipe. I don't know time. if you've been around Ice Cube either that much. What? But, or J-Lo. <laughs> Anaconda. <laughs> yeah. Good. John Voight. Yo, hold up. How we go from taking Kale to the hospital to catching a goddamn snake? Do you know where you are? You're in the middle of the jungle. 
I've watched that movie so many times. Maybe I just they're just they're old news to me. Big snakes. Well, yeah, you, you wouldn't say one. that if you were the, in there. Well, interesting. True. We covered the Pensacola sea monster, right? Sea serpent, and we played that video from Fall River of that family who was terrorized. Remember that Fall River? They were on the beach and describing this sea serpent with the head the size this of a basketball. That's what I'm saying. Oh, crazy. That happened right there in Massachusetts. That's part of the triangle. Fall River. It's actually Family Beach, I think, which is where some of the satanic alleged cult activity happened. That we'll be getting to in the expansion. Yeah, right? that will probably be more in the expansion. But let, so let me finish wrapping this up. So some other notable phenomena that happens here are, yes, oversized snakes, but also oversized cats, dogs, the huge demon dogs, and turtles. There's a turtle supposedly the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Has been seen. Oh, boy. Um, occult rituals as I said, animal mutilations and supposedly satanic sacrifice. And that we're going to get into in the expansion because for all of you that think that didn't happen, satanic panic, whatever, I'm sure there was some of that, but there are specific cases that have been prosecuted where it's definitely happened specifically in the Huckamuck Swamp in the area surrounding the Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah, that stuff is, is pretty fascinating and pretty compelling. And we'll hear from the detective in charge of the case yeah. in the expansion episode. And the question is, is there something to this area that inspires this kind of darkness it's also a beautiful area we should say oh yes it is a beautiful area by the way guys <laughs> there's a lot of positives to the area yeah and it's i think more mysterious than anything there is sure there is darkness and i think when you have places like this you're going to have some dark tragic history right but there's also a lot of beauty there no it's and the history is fascinating which is about what i'm going to get into in a moment here to kind of set the stage but um yeah it, it is a gorgeous area and it's one of the areas that the three of us have never been the northeastern united states i know out of everywhere we've gone yeah. New England. I've always wanted to go up northeast, but not too far. But it's inspired, you know, Stephen King, one of your guys, mm -hmm. or one of my good friends. <laughs> it influenced important writers of kind of the macabre and unusual. Or yeah, yeah, the area is just kind of mysterious. Mm -hmm. You're right. It's inspired. H.P. Lovecraft, those. Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah, I think of like Dairy Maine. Yeah, and like oceans with the lighthouses and things mm -hmm. like exactly that. Like the rocky, the fog, the mist. Right? The, yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we read somewhere is describing, you, any of you guys out there from this area, you know, you'll know better than I, but just reading about the area, they would describe how like you can have these, you know, kind of thick, dark forests that um, hide away in the hills, tucked in villages that appear from out of the fog because it's just this kind of mysterious ambiance with a lot of mist and fogs up there being close to the sea. It just sounds like a, a fascinating kind of mysterious, inspiring area. So yeah, with that said, let's set the scene a little bit for some of the darkness that might be there. Now, this is a term that I want to coin, since Lauren Coleman got to coin a term, at, such as the Bridgewater <laughs> Triangle. Uh, but I'm going to coin the term right now, guys. Something that may be produced in places like this, and that is phenomena fuel. Oh, phenomena fuel. I'm trying to say it cool, so it gets coined. Pretty uh, excellent. Phenomena fuel, the dark residue energy of war. Wow, that was a pregnant pause. <laughs> I was trying to sure think was. of a different word because this could apply for a lot of different reasons of tragedy, trauma, but in this case, it's bloody, bloody war right. in battles in the area. Now, what's interesting is the war that I'm going to be talking about here is the King Philip's War, also known as the First Indian War, but it's the bloodiest war per capita in U.S. history. That's crazy, yeah, because I always think about the Civil War being the most devastating war. But yeah. I guess there were less people at the time in yeah. the settlements. This was in the 1600s, so I'm pretty sure per capita, meaning that it was the bloodiest because we didn't have that many people here yet compared to this when the Civil War occurred. But there were hundreds of colonists killed, thousands of natives killed, wounded or captured or sold into slavery uh, or indentured servitude. But what's fascinating is this war, King Philip's War, was actually a rebellion against the colonists. And 
The guy who led that was King Philip, and that was what the English called this chief, but his name was Metacom. Right, that was sort of his nickname, right? Exactly, and he was a Wampanoag leader. And what's fascinating is his father is the guy who signed the peace treaty with the pilgrims from the Mayflower, just like 50 years earlier. Yeah, this is the very beginning of the founding of the country. Yeah, the country's not even founded yet, but the settling has begun. So the pilgrims, the Mayflower, they get off the boat, make this peace treaty, but then later, the son of the chief who made that deal is seeing what's happening to his people. The English want to rewrite the peace treaty so that the guns from the natives are taken away. And then and they're like, well, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, a year later, three of his men are hung for supposedly killing another uh, Wampanoag tribal member, hung by the English. But so this causes a lot of tension. And then eventually the rebellion begins. And this war, the heart of this war, or you could say the strategic operations base for the Wampanoag people and for King Philip is the Huckamuck Swamp. Right in the middle of the triangle, right? Yes, right in the middle of this triangle. And all this death, all this destruction creates what I call the fertile earth seated with the muck and mirth where the spirits can grow in shadow. And that's what we have here in the Huckamuck Swamp. Yeah, all that betrayal, all that tragedy. Yeah, seeping into the ground there. All fueling that energy there. Yeah, the Huckamuck Swamp, uh, this is the pulse of the Bridgewater Triangle. This is where you see, you know, like we've said, like the Bigfoot, hairy man type creatures, uh, spook lights, oversized animals, the Thunderbirds, all these things coming out of the swamp. That's where in the battle, the natives would attack the colonists and retreat to that because the colonists didn't understand swamps. I guess there's not a lot of swamps in England. Yeah. After they lost the, the rebellion, they retreated into that swamp. And then, you know, over the years, they would run these raids to try to, you know, have some sort of impact. Fighting back. Yeah. Right. But the settlers were afraid of the swamp, terrified of it. So here's a great quote, and this sets up the Huckamuck Swamp and the phenomena there. And this comes from Ted Williams' History of the Huckamuck. On still nights, the evil glitter of foxfire or the demonic cackle of a barred owl sent chills up the spines of the early settlers. Hordes of crows rose each morning from the guts of the swamp to ravage farmers' corn. And from time to time, young girls merrily picking blueberries along the fringes found themselves drawn farther and farther along unfamiliar paths seduced by the increasing size of the berries until at last they were lost and claimed by the swamp forever. So that kind of sets up the perspective of the swamp from the settlers, right? Right. Early settlers would get lost and never come out. Mm. Uh, They're just not used to the the terrain and it becomes this kind of mysterious dark place where wolves would attack at night, uh, attack the villages nearby. Actually, one of the earliest... uh, uh, points of uh, conversation at the meetings of the town council, you could say back then in the 1600s was, hey, let's order some wolf traps from England because we need to keep these monsters co- from coming out of the swamp. What do those look like, I wonder? Wolf traps? Yeah. I don't know. Probably made of solid gold and silver. And <laughs> I just felt like a giant mouse trap. Probably caged with the sliding front or something. No, I'm sure, I don't think they need to worry about catching them alive. They're that's probably true. leg traps, like bear traps. Oh, that's, okay. That that's makes what sense. I would guess. I'm not a wolf catcher. But so that's how the colonists saw it, right? But the natives saw this area as kind of, you know, like anything in nature. It's it's beautiful. It's life-giving. They use it for hunting. That's how they survive. But it's also a source of darkness. The word that they used for it, huckamuck, means in Algonquin, place where spirits dwell. Right. So although they used it for hunting and thought of it as a magical place, it also served as a, a sacred burial ground. Mm-hmm. So you have hundreds, if not thousands, of Indian bodies buried there, which adds to just that energy. Real quick, sorry, was it a place where spirits dwell? Did they name it that because they felt that there were spirits there? Or is it because it was their 
burial ground? That's a good question. It's two pronged. So it is their burial ground where obviously spirits of the dead may be. But interestingly, the Huckamuck is occasionally referred to as the Hobamuck. And now the Hobamuck is where you get the dark side of that spirit idea. The Wampanoag worshipped and feared Hobamuck, the chief deity of death and disease. Hobamuck, composed of human souls of the dead, was known to congregate in areas like the Huckamuck. Mm. Thus, the term Huckamuck and Hobamuck became interchangeable among natives, non-natives, when referring to the swamp or the spirit. Interesting. And yeah. That's such a common idea in a, in a lot of lore and legend in different cultures around the world, especially ancient cultures, where you have places that have their own sort of soul. Exactly. Or a deity that resides there because of the area. Right. Interesting. Yeah, these wetlands have that kind of uh, fertile, transient nature of passing between worlds. So you could see why it would be the place where spirits dwell, combined with the sacred places of burial there that they have. And then, of course, the deity of death comprised of the souls of the dead and the kind of the darkness there at the same time. So yeah, it's a, it's a freaky place, I would say, but it's also beautiful and majestic for that reason. But it is the core, like I said, it is the pulse of the Bridgewater Triangle, the beating dark heart, if you will. And all the phenomena branches out, of course, from there. That's the idea, but it continues to grow to this day. So we do have a, a, just a short piece of testimony I have here from a local resident who lived on the, uh, the edge of the swamp. The neighborhood kids often talked about feeling watched in the swamp and hearing something bowling through the forest knocking down trees. We'd also heard of people actually hearing loud, blood-curdling screams. It wasn't until I was maybe 10 or 11 that some friends and I experienced these things for ourselves, along with a whole slew of other phenomenon, disembodied voices, trees being thrown at us while deep in the woods, what looked like large human footprints in the cornfields, ghostly forms, strange lights, a strange squeaking sound that seemed to be coming from the detached plastic head of a Native American doll that seemed to respond to questions and things we were saying. Cult activity, you name it. That's bizarre. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of stuff going on right there. Yeah. And I think this fell actually might have been more of the Freetown Forest. The Freetown Forest is another hotspot here, right near the swamp. Right. Um, we'll focus on that in the expansion part. We get into the cult activity. Yeah, that's where a lot of the alleged cult activity, satanic cult sacrifice, whatever you want to call it, took place. So there's some fascinating stories there, but it just adds to that kind of dark legend and lore of the area. This was interesting. So the uh, Freetown Forest is in Freetown, the southeastern apex of the Triangle. It is a place filled with negative, many even say evil energy. The forest is most famous for its murders, especially those committed by satanic cults, allegedly. To this day, satanic activity is taking place, some say, in the forest, and it is not uncommon to see the, quote, hooded people practicing rituals there. So stay tuned for that, for the expansion. We have first-hand testimony of a detective there who witnessed this throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, starting out early in his career, specifically seeing the the hooded people. Yeah. And the other detectives would say, oh, it's just leftover hippies uh, <laughs> camping out in the swamps or whatever. But, but then, then they started finding animal bones. And right. Evidence of sacrifice, occult symbolism painted around, and, and then eventually human sacrifice. And Well, that's and that's the thing. Some people say there's never been human sacrifice in the swamp I mean, there was a body found. We'll get more into the details there. That's a little more murky of a situation, but there's definitely a cult, if you want to call it satanic ritual going on in there. There's domiciles found with satanic symbolism. You know, little hideaways. Like you said, the animals, multiple animal mutilations, cows. 
taken there that weren't reported missing from neighboring areas. So maybe they were brought in was the Weird, idea from the yeah. detective, but used in the sacrifice, decapitated cattle, you know, things that where it's not a fox going in, you know, chewing the head off. And right. Plus often coupled with symbolism. So, you oh, know, yeah. we'll get into all that in the expansion. Yeah, we'll get, that'll be in the expansion, guys. Let's start on a lighter note with some puckawudgies. Puckawudgies. I like these guys. They're fun yeah. little guys. They're fun little guys. Remind me of like a Star Wars character. Yeah, like Ewoks. Kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, the Bigfoot researchers that are into the flesh and blood Bigfoot sort of viewpoint, they consider the idea of the Pukawaji being like a little foot, you know? A little foot? A little foot. And I th- then the guy who we're going to talk about here who had one of the most uh, well-known encounters, that's before he heard about the local lore of the Pukawaji. He was like, I guess it's like a little foot. That's what he would call it when it's he had this experience. a little foot. I thought that was a Brontosaurus yeah. from that Pizza Hut movie. Oh, yep, man. yep, yep. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Ducky. Oh, good old days. Land Before Time. Check it out, guys. Recommended film. Can you explain what a little foot is? Like a big foot, but a little foot? Like a yeah, small well, ape? Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is that the Bigfoot researchers think that the Puckawudgie concept is basically just a misidentification of a little foot, which is basically just a small Bigfoot. Right. Or, a, I guess, a baby Bigfoot, you could <laughs> say. Say that again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> little Bigfoot burp. It just came out. <laughs> it was adorable. But so, yeah, the Puckawudgie, John, to kind of answer your question, the lore of that comes from the Native Americans in the area and this comes from nativelanguages.org, which is actually one of the best resources I've actually found online for quick and pretty accurate information on native tribes and their lore. Pukawajis are magical little people of the forest in Algonquin folklore, similar to European gnomes or fairies. Pukawaji stories are told throughout the Northeast United States, Southeastern Canada, and the Great Lakes region. However, their nature varies in the folklore of different tribes. In the Ojibwe and other Great Lakes tribes, the Pukawaji, or Bagwan Janini is considered a mischievous but basically good-natured creature who plays tricks on people but is not dangerous. In the Abenaki and other Northeast Algonquin tribes, a Pukwaji or Bakwajaman can be dangerous, but only to people who treat him with disrespect. In the Wampanoag and other tribes of the southern New England, Pukwajis are capricious and dangerous creatures who may play harmless tricks or even help a human neighbor but are just as likely to steal children or commit deadly acts of sabotage. Yikes. Pukawajis are usually described, and this is the more physical description, as being knee-high or even smaller. Their name literally means person of the wilderness, and they are usually considered to be spirits of the forest. Pukawajis have magical powers, which vary from tribe to tribe, but may include the ability to turn invisible, confuse people, or make them forget things, shapeshift into cougars or other dangerous animals, or bring harm to people by staring at them. So this is going to come into play, and you start to think about these ideas of turning invisible, right? Invisible entities in the forest, like yes. we've talked about before, confusing people or luring them. Yes, calling to them. Thing. We talked about that in our Strange Voices episode. It all kind of ties in with the Pukwudgie idea. And that's what happens in this story you're about to tell, right? The summoning, the luring yeah. of this thing, potentially for dark purposes. It aligns again with the fairy idea, right? Taking people away. Yeah. And this is one of my favorite stories in the Bridgewater Triangle and probably one of the most popular. Um, as fantastic as it sounds. Quick note. So the Pukawaji, one of the interesting things I heard about, I don't know if this is true or not, but that maybe specifically from the uh, Wampanoag lore, I guess it said it can be good or bad, right? right? It's kind of a neutral figure, but it can just as easily kill you, lead you to your death. Yeah. That was one of the ideas is that it can summon you to jump off a cliff, for instance, which supposedly could explain some of the uh, unexplained suicides on some of the cliffs there. But what was really interesting is that I read somewhere that specifically that it seemed like the Pukawaji had 
a controller, this dark shadow spirit yeah. that whenever the Pukkawaji was seen, or oftentimes there would be this dark shadow figure mm-hmm. that seemed to be the one controlling it. And what's interesting is- yeah, That's an interesting aside to that whole yeah, experience. One of the powers allegedly of the Pukkawaji is Pukkawaji possession, where they can possess you and even make you act like an animal or, or just basically, you know, the typical traits of possession. And in the expansion, we'll have a clip of a woman who was ghost hunting and was supposedly possessed by a Pukkawaji. Definitely interesting. I watched it, you know, with some suspicion, but pretty compelling. Yeah, well, it's creepy. Regardless, you know, even if she just let herself, you know, give way to the the hype of the moment, it's still kind of disturbing. But she was in the Huckamuck Swamp, I believe, or the forest. Let's tell this story. And this story was an experience that William Russo had. So William Russo, his home was in the Bridgewater Triangle. It was built in the town of Rainham, on a knoll just a few hundred yards from the entrance to a large tract of the Hockamock. And that part had never been really explored where his place was. So buffering his backyard was the entrance to the swamp. It was a several-mile-long swath of undeveloped land occupied by high-tension power lines running from Providence up to Boston. And even in the daylight, he said, walking this overgrown tract that they called the High Tees was somewhat disconcerting because it was also used as a main highway for dangerous animals. You have the odd mountain lion or coyote sighting occasional wildcat. And he says, quote, at night, those relatively harmless mammals are reportedly joined by a plethora of bizarre creatures, some beyond description. (laughs) So this account takes place one evening in the autumn of 1990. For six years, I worked a three to midnight shift. And when I got home, my custom was to walk my dog, an 80 pound female Rottweiler shepherd mix. Samantha and I loved our exercise and we walked every single night summer and winter. We usually walked on the sidewalks towards the center of town and stayed away from the Hockamock Swamp. But one night, we varied our routine and walked through the woods toward an old dam that once provided water power for an early ironworks. Sam, why do you want to walk the high tees? I asked her as she pulled me towards the tall wires that were shrouded by even loftier trees. Sammy just looked at me with her bright eyes. She did not bark or get excited like she did when we went for hamburgers at McDonald's or swimming at the nip, but I could tell she wanted to walk a different route. As Sam and I cut through the backyard and entered the high trees, darkness was instant and total. No streetlights or starlights can penetrate the canopy of the rangy hundred-year-old pines that dwarf the power lines. About a half mile into the walk, we arrived at a break where a road cuts through the swath. Sam pulled hard on her leash and looked up to me. Her hair stood on end. She made not a noise, but trembled and looked at me for protection. What's wrong, Samantha? I don't see anything. It's okay, baby. We'll go home now. Come on. I tugged on her leash, but she did not budge. It wasn't obstinacy. It was fear. My big rot Shep mix, who would tackle a one-ton bison or a wild mountain lion, was scared stiff. I heard what frightened her before I saw it. An eerie call floated to my ears in the still night. The unearthly high-pitched voice was closer and louder. There was a street lamp about 20 feet in front of me and it cast a bluish circle of light on the pavement. Into the circle walked a hairy creature 
about three to four feet tall, which weighed probably a hundred pounds. It repeated over and over again. The creature stood very straight on two feet and looked at me with eyes that were too large for its head. Like the eyes of an owl, Sammy and I were frozen as we watched the hairy thing. It did not advance further and did not appear to be threatening us, but we were still scared. Sam did not bark nor whine. She trembled slightly and kept looking at me as if to say, what is it? It's okay, Sam, I said unconvincingly. The creature kept talking and began motioning with its arms. It wore no clothes and was completely covered with coarse, unkempt hair that was about five or six inches long. It seemed to have a pot belly, and I took it to be in the young stages of old age. We stood watching the thing for not more than a minute, but it felt like hours. It kept speaking to us, but made no further movement toward us. I summoned enough courage to ask it a few questions, but got no answer other than repeated again and again. I am ashamed to admit that I walked away. Sam and I turned and went home as fast as we could. In my living room, I stayed up all night analyzing the encounter. I tried to figure out what the hairy thing was saying, and my best guess at a translation is this. It was speaking English and saying, we want you. We want you. Come here. Come here. We want you. We want you. To this day, I do not know what they wanted me for. Or maybe it was Sam they wanted. If I had the grit to meet with the creature, I could probably write a good ending to this story. Or maybe Sam and I would have been a midnight snack to a band of hairy little pot-bellied carnivores. Over the years, I did go back to the place of the encounter, but I never again saw the hairy, big-eyed thing that summoned me with the call. So yeah, I mean, definitely bizarre encounter. Yeah. The fascinating thing about this is that this guy had never heard of the Pukawaji before, right? Right. When he had this experience. I just can't get the Ewok image out of my head. Very similar. Pretty similar. The sound design would be very much like that. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's good. He said the closest illustration anyone ever got was this image here, and we'll have this in the show notes. He said the only thing is that the eyes were bigger than that, but basically a small, kind of scrawny, hairy, pot-bellied, fur-covered creature with big, almost imagine the size of a cat's eyes in its head, how it's a little bit bigger proportion for its body. That's what he said was sort of the depict the correct depiction. Cat's eyes are bigger than the proportion of their head? Mm-hmm. Just generally. What are you talking about, like Siamese cats or something? Yeah, cats in general. I don't feel like cats' eyes are too big for their head. They're just a little bigger is than... Is this your opinion? Mm-hmm. Is this this is what he this? said. I'm taking his word. Oh, okay. Well, I started to think about it, and I imagine a cat's... Imagine just a cat looking at you. Its eyes are pretty Let me big Google for cat, the rest of its head. Cat head. Let's see what they proportion look Proportion like. to its... I can't remember. I, I guess some... Well, might depend on the breed here. Okay, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it, maybe you're thinking he's thinking of like he does say owl in the original description. So kind yeah, of I mean, that. I kind, I mean, I guess I kind of see kind of they're like dominant. They don't look overly out of proportion. They just it's look, more like they're in, they're really grabbing. Their yeah, eye. they're like all one color. Mark Not all of them, but they, shut up! Like these are two different colors, but the slit, the vertical slits, what's creepy with cats? I look forgot they had that. Cat. Do dogs have that vertical slit? I know. Dogs are more human looking. Yeah. Not all dogs. It's harder to find people. But Jake is 
copper eyes with like yeah. like a pupil though. Like mm-hmm. it's like a round pupil. So according to the internet, the most intriguing feature of a cat's eyes is its sheer size. If we look at the proportions carefully, their eyes are quite large in comparison to the yeah. size of the head. Oh. This is typically in the, of nocturnal right, animals. Right, 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 so right. So I guess you could say with the Pukawaji, the nocturnal aspect, they are seen at night. This encounter happened at night. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. It's like a weird story to make up for sure. Yeah, and I do want to say Bill Russo, he seems like a very credible guy. And he wrote a book after this that includes this encounter, but also has some other really interesting stories from New England. It's called The Creatures from the Bridgewater Triangle and Other Odd Tales from New England. I definitely recommend it. Yeah, and also the film that we're going to be discussing in the expansion, the documentary uh, that we're going to get into that touches on some of the cult activity, that's called The Bridgewater Triangle. And his actual firsthand experience he tells in that documentary. Oh, okay. So if you want to hear from his own words, if you want to hear from his own words, check that documentary out. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. But yeah, I thought definitely one of the most known stories. We're going to get into some more obscure stories, but you got to tell that one. Are there any other stories of people seeing the Pukawaji, like in modern times? Yeah, actually, funny you mentioned that, Jer. There's a story that comes up that was originally told in another great book written by a local. I think he's a local. Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest, Massachusetts, by Christopher Balzano. This is a more recent encounter, and this happened to a woman named Joan who relayed the story to him. Joan was walking her dog through the state forest of Freetown, Massachusetts. Again, the dog on a cold Saturday morning in April when she saw the monster. As she and her dog sit... That scared me. (laughs) That gave me me a pee a little on pants. (laughs) As she and her dog, Sid, walked down the path, Sid became anxious and strayed a few feet into the woods. Joan followed him in and stopped short. Her dog was lying completely flat in the leaves, and on a rock ten feet away was a Pukkawaji. She described him as looking like what she would describe as a troll, two feet high with pale gray skin and hair on his arms and on top of his head. The monster seemed to have no clothes, but it was difficult to tell because his stomach hung over his waist, almost touching his knees. His eyes were deep green, and he had large lips and a long, almost canine nose. The Pukawaji stood watching her, staring out at her with no expression, almost like it was stunned to see her. Joan froze and remembers thinking the air in her lungs had been pushed out. Sid finally came to and ran back towards the trail, dragging Joan, who was still holding the leash tightly. Although the whole exchange took less than 30 seconds, it remains with Joan 10 years later. She has not gone back to the forest, but feels that might not be enough. Three times since the event, she has woken up to find the demon looking in on her. Ooh, creepy. What? It has never attacked her or spoken to her. She has merely seen it looking through her bedroom window, staying just long enough for her to notice him. All three times, she claims she was fully awake. Oh, the Puckawudgie's a little peeping Tom is what the Puckawudgie Sounds like is. A little pervert. Sounds like one of the darker versions of the Puckawudgie. I want you, Andreas. Wow, oh, man. Cut that out. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was great. Keep that in there. One of the creepy aspects about this Pukawaji thing and what relates to the stuff we talked about, like in that first story you read, John, the alluring, come here, trying to get him to come here mm-hmm. into the woods. Would he be seeing again? It resonates so much with so much of the stuff that we cover. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Are there little hairy Pukawajis out there? Sounds like Back it. Back people in, maybe. And we've talked, and this actually also reminds me of that Siloasi story with the colored socks. Very similar. And yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, in description of these things that were seen in Siloasi. They must be like, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. 
I just feel like there's got to be like another dimensional aspect to him because I feel like science would have run into these at some point. Right. Yeah. Some some hunter would have trapped it. Yeah. You know? Maybe they just have the ability to like disappear. Are they possible? just very good at hiding? Well, that's the lore is that there is the invisibility aspect to it. And they can speak a language, so they've obviously some intelligence. Yeah, at least like, according to Bill's experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, with the invisibility thing, like this is the key here to me is that, you know, not just the invisibility, I suppose, but that is an explanation of why they aren't found. But in modern times, you would think that they would be found. Maybe they can go invisible or maybe just super camouflaged. But they're being seen in modern times with the exact description with the Wampanoag and the Algonquin talked about these Puckawudgies and the crazy thing about it is it's happening in modern times. It happened in pre-colonial times. Who knows how many thousands of years this thing has been seen by right. living man, you know, but only documented since the the Algonquin people and then the, the colonists and now Bill. Yeah, and he even mentions that after like looking back on his experience, he talks about it's a time to think about it. He's learned about the Pukwudgie lore. They've probably been here since before. Even the native tribes were in the area and will probably be here till we're all gone. Who knows? But yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, I think the other dimensionality aspect to it, John, definitely makes sense. It would explain a lot of things. There is so much area here that has been undiscovered, like the swamplands. There are hundreds of acres of mm-hmm. untouched swampland. Who oh, knows yeah. what might... No humans have touched a lot of areas of that More swamp. Than, you say hundreds of acres? No, the, yeah, the Huckamuck Swamp, it's considered the largest freshwater swamp in the state of Massachusetts, and it's 16,950 acres. Oh, yeah, that's a lot bigger. That's big. Yeah, that's that's really, really bigger. big. There are decently sized animals that are one species that live in mm-hmm. smaller areas. Right. So it's not crazy to imagine that there are things that have retreated and survived in small pockets around the world. Right. You know, but when, with that much space though, it, it makes it even more probable. Right. The texture of this swamp is ridiculously yeah, hard no to traverse. No one's exploring those things no. a lot. There's people that probably go in and maybe even yeah, like Yeah, there's hunters and trappers. And yeah. yeah. But for the most part, they're pretty untouched. Yeah, I mean, there's stories of even, you know, hunters who's hunted those areas for decades that still can go in and become discombobulated, get lost, mm-hmm. and then have a terrifying experience in the woods, you know. As soon as I learned about the, the swamp. remoteness of the area and the unsearched aspects of this part of the world, that made it even more interesting with these experiences because it just reminds me of places like Michele and Bebe was, oh, yeah. you know, they were hunting for him in this area of, gosh, where was this? Africa? Mm-hmm. I can't remember now. We did that in the first expansion episode. But where you'd have all these sightings, but there was so much terrain there that had just been undiscovered or unsearched, uninvestigated. Well, it makes it believable that you could have, say, a surviving species of a giant tortoise, the one the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, if it's living in this the swamp that no one goes to, that it could just sit there and exist throughout millions of years, potentially. You know, you think about it, like, there'd have to be a lot, right? There'd have to be a decent number of those for a surviving species, but how long have tigers been on the brink of extinction? And certain species that are more rare, like how long was that Australian wolf thing? I forget what it is now, but uh, it was on the brink of extinction for a long time. And they still think they might actually be out there. You know what I'm talking about, Jer? Oh yeah, the um, Tasmanian tiger? Something, yeah, Tasmanian tiger. They still think there could be a few of those left out there. So how long can they live in small numbers before going completely extinct? Who knows? Yeah, well, look at this guy. This guy is a uh, this enormous freshwater turtle. It existed 60 million years ago. I have a picture of this in the show notes. This thing is massive, probably the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And it looks like it's in a swampy area. So maybe it just sat there and no one found it. And it's, you know, these things are, could still be living out there. That's definitely possible. That's uh, awesome though. I want one. Keep I mean, the turtle less likely to me only because, uh, see, it says right here, and this has nothing to do with the Hockamock Swamp, but this Wikipedia article says this turtle is roughly the size of a smart car. And the shell could have been inverted to use as a kiddie pool. Okay, that's a nice little addition. But yeah. So, But yeah, I think, I mean, the turtle, just not as interesting to me because you don't hear about that anywhere else. <sighs> so? But, 
It's unique. The Thunderbird that comes into play later, that's something you hear in a lot of places. Yeah. And ancestors of Thunderbirds 8,000 years ago. So alongside humans, while they had at least rudimentary culture, we had developing of large megaliths, you know, agriculture. A couple thousand years while we're living alongside these Thunderbirds, these that giant 20 foot wingspans. So we'll get into yeah. that story. I always love a good Thunderbird story and it involves police. So that's like extra fun. It is weird how things in the swamps live longer, like at our folks' place. In the marshes there, they have the skunk cabbage, right? Oh, right. Which is a prehistoric kind of plant. I mean, you have this stuff in different places, but the swamp seems to preserve stuff. The peat, the bog. Well, that's a good segue. A good tailspin into the cops and Thunderbird story that I have here. This actually also comes from Bill Russo. Then I looked it up. The guy that he's referring to here, the police officer, was a real guy who worked in the area and that he knew. He found his obituary, right? Yeah. So he was real. I just want to double check. I mean, I, Will Russo seems like a very trustworthy guy. I just wanted to double check. You for, did you know, the legwork. So he was the editor for a suburban newspaper in the 1970s, and he said, you know, part of his duties was talking with police officers, and that's how he knew Officer Downey, who experienced this. And this is a pretty fascinating account. And this happened one evening in 1971, and it happened on Bird Hill, which is kind of ironic. Was it named Bird Hill because of the Thunderbird story, or was that pre named Bird Hill previously? Predating. Ooh. Which, you know, you hear of these things happening all the time, and you have to wonder, like, was something had been seen in the area before and thus was given that name? Right. So at the end of Sergeant Downey's shift, he left the station. He was driving through neighboring Mansfield to get home. And that's when this encounter occurred. It was well after midnight when he reached Bird Hill near his house. Appropriately, or perhaps ironically, the sergeant saw a bird, a massive creature with a wingspan far larger than the width of a police car. He later said that the enormous flying thing dropped down to the pavement and towered two or three feet above the roof of his car, making it at least six feet tall. The wingspan of the pterodactyl-like creature was estimated to be 10 to 12 feet. Sergeant Downey stopped his vehicle at an intersection and studied the strange winged giant. Flapping its massive wings, the gigantic bird flew straight up and over the trees before it disappeared into the darkness of the Huckamuck Swamp. When he got home, he thought about what he saw for a moment or two and reported it to the Easton police. A car was dispatched, but after a check of the area, no giant bird was spotted. In the following days, we of the area news media reported the sighting merely as a routine blotter item. No hoopla, buzz, or sensationalism. Though Sergeant Downey was kidded about the encounter, most people who knew him regarded him as a serious individual, not prone to making up stories, and not one who would make false claims about what he saw. Yeah, so that, that was his experience. He said that years following this, people would ask him about this all the time and basically just got fed up with talking to people about it. Right. And at the end, he basically said, quote, enough, no more. And since then, he's refused to give any comments. It hurts your credibility, I imagine, as a police officer. Yeah, and as, as far as Bill knows, after the 1980s, he never made any additional comments. Um, but I thought an interesting story. Yeah, definitely. And a police officer definitely gives a little more credibility to the experience. Yeah, trained observer. That's the idea. Oh, I just want to say the bird that I was mentioning earlier that would tie into these Thunderbird experiences, the Teratorn. Okay. Again, lived alongside civilized culture. Ancient man. Yeah. yeah not even that ancient. 8,000 years ago. That's, That's not that long crazy ago. Crazy to think. Cool. Well, you guys want to take a quick break? Yeah. So we have our stinger for Sound Iron. Nice. Awesome. So in this stinger, we sort of brought to life HP Lovecraft's Supernatural University, kind of because we're focusing on the strangeness of New England. Uh, we thought it would be a good direction to go for the Sound Iron stinger. 
Oh, and one more thing. We've done a few discount codes already for different sample libraries, and all those are going to be linked in the show notes below. So check that out if you want to see what sound iron sample libraries are on sale. That was a tongue twister. So without further ado, here is the stinger. Hi, I'm Trex Goldman, co-chair of student initiation here at Miskatonic University, and I'm here to put you back on the path to success. Here at Miskatonic University, we specialize in educating you about the undercurrents of reality, so you can have that extra competitive edge in the workplace. With our new courses in aquatic psychology and transtemporal poetry, you're sure to impress your way to success. Remember boring old water cooler talk? Not anymore! Hey, Bob! Yes, Steve? Did you get to the game last night? No, but I did psychically merge with one of the old gods. Oh, really? Which one? Cthulhu! Nice! Yeah! When it comes to the workplace advancement, we'll teach you to rise to the top like the cream of the crop through memorization of arcade knowledge and learning the languages of the old gods. You might be thinking, well, how can I afford to enroll in these fantastic programs? Well, with our groundbreaking student financial soul contract, your monetary concerns will be a thing of the past. And now with our simple fluid extraction payback plan and our convenient auto pay system, you can make payments literally while you sleep. Let's hear what some of our recent Miskatonians have to say about their experience. Thanks to the Practical Incantations program, I've lost all 10 of my fingers, but gained a great education and a tail. The job market was tough. But Miskatonic helped me break through that glass ceiling. And space time. Before night courses at Miskatonic, I was a real loser. And I couldn't make a friend to save my life. But thanks to last semester's necromancy course, I've already made three friends. Take that, Mom. So what are you waiting for? Join us at Miskatonic University. And let's explore the nameless abyss together. You can do it! All right, guys, let's jump back into the triangle. So as we said earlier, it doesn't really have boundaries. And some people say it's spreading. But I found an account in a neighboring Boston area, Massachusetts, which is just north of the triangle, that isn't traditionally considered part of the triangle. But this took place in the 1600s, around the time of like settlers coming in and the whole war and everything. This took place in 1639. I like the old ones. So phenomena happened just outside of the triangle even early on. This idea that it's just spreading now, of course, isn't isn't the case. So any of you guys want to read this? You can read it in like a fun colonial old-timey voice. Okay. So this takes place in 1639. In March 1639, John Winthrop, a governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, recorded a clear, detailed, unemotional account of a luminous object over what is now the Back Bay section of Boston. It seemed to play zigzag games in the sky. Numerous witnesses agreed its movements resembled those of a pig trying to avoid the capture. (laughs) I keep going Australian. Oh, man. Let me try that one more time. 
Numerous witnesses agreed its movements resembled those of a pig trying to avoid capture. Are you trying to do that? <laughs> trying, oh, it's so Jesus. weird. There's something about that sentence. Trying that... to avoid capture. Its movements resembled those of a pig trying to avoid capture by racing hither and yon. It vanished, but only for a while. Then in January 1695, two similar moon-sized luminous objects played aerial tag over Boston Harbor. Several witnesses heard a voice in the sky, repeating in a most dreadful manner. <laughs> the words, Boy, boy, come away, come away. Two weeks later, the light returned. Then a new group of witnesses heard the same unearthly summons. To this day, no one knows who was calling or where the boy was being summoned to. I was so engaged in that, and John delivering the story, I didn't really pay attention to it. What, what happened? Zigzagging lights. Right? Yeah, well, Loomis object. And that was just a good example of like how this phenomenon has been going on for hundreds of years before right. the triangle was obviously established. And it's outside of the triangle, just, just a little bit. Yeah, you know, we didn't even cover, maybe we'll do it in the expansion, but excellent story of two news reporters, radio news reporters, who witnessed that UFO craft, the actual craft coming down, right? When they that's, just left the track. Sorry, but the account is almost exactly like the a UFO that I saw. Right, the mm -hmm. jumping in the sky. Yeah, the zigzagging, mm -hmm. like just all over the I place. I like the way they described it, a pig trying to avoid capture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's running back and forth with no discernible reason. It's just, yeah, just evading. It's weird. How how old is this? That's from 16... 1639. 39, and you saw it in 2011? Yeah, somewhere around there. That's, I mean, it's just crazy the similarities of these still unknown things occurring in the sky. So it obviously wasn't military back then. Right. Right. And something that's interesting, on. yeah. I mean, yeah, UFOs have... We should do like a, a show on that one time. Like UFOs through Just history? the history of like, because I mean- I'd love they, to do that. Isn't there like, um, without getting too far off topic, Yeah. isn't there like a really famous painting with the UFO in it? Yeah, there's several. But yeah, you're talking what about the one that? where like they're pointing up. It's in, it's like in the back. It's like a religious painting. Yeah. yeah. It's the, the, I think it's when the angel is telling Mary she's going to have- a boy that she's pregnant, basically. Oh, it's that that story. I'm pretty line? sure that's the that's the image there. Oh, that's true. That's very strange. If it's actually and there's the like a little guy and a little egg UFO like flying in the up in the sky. Yeah. Well, it's just a sh like a UFO looking thing. Yeah, but in if the you, sky. I think if you look close enough, there's like a little dude in it. What? Pretty sure. No. Yeah. Yeah. Because no. I think it's supposed to be an angel potentially in a like spaceship. Yeah. And to us, it looks and like a spaceship. when was this painted? Well, here's one. This is from, guys, this will be in the show notes. We should do an episode on this because uh, we don't have all, all the data here for you, but here's one example. That's a different one. Data? That's the one, that's the one I was thinking of, yeah. This one looks like it's a crucifixion, but it might be a longer story, maybe the passion. But there's a whole article here. We should do an episode on this. The hard thing is it's so visual, but we could describe some of it. It'd be a good live stream. I loved this, but Jeremy's never interested in aliens, and John, you're never interested in history. So if you guys are down for it, I'd love to do it. I think we should do it on the live stream. Live stream would be good because then we can really show the images and talk yeah, about it. It'd be great for that. And we need to do another live stream pretty yeah. soon. But of course, if we want to do accounts in history, there are a lot of stories. Like Christopher Columbus. We covered his before. Journal, diary entries from historic figures, mm -hmm. uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, the sh famous shields in the sky. Right. These, you know, these kind of reports have been throughout history of unexplained phenomena that people strange, use to chalk yeah. up to comets and asteroids. But yeah, and some of them are, you know, controversial in the source material for some of the accounts, but they're definitely really interesting. I love the ones from history because it does just, I like how it ties in the contemporary sightings with what they saw in the past and what they thought it was back then. Right. But we're seeing the same things now. And they just didn't have technology back then, like they, at least that we know of, at least on earth. Well, that's the thing is I do on believe in ancient civilizations that have been like the Vimana, the Hindu, maybe right. underground civilizations that might've been existing at the time. Doesn't necessarily mean they're from outer space. The Vril. 
Maybe the escape to catastrophe. It could be Atlantis, uh, Lemuria, Shambhala. What's this one up by Ireland? High Brazil. High Brazil. Yeah. There, I mean, there's all kinds of stories of ancient civilizations. With, it's a lot of these with the craft. So it's possible it's just from the underworld. Yeah. But relating it to this, to the Bridgewater, there was that fascinating account in the documentary. And we might get into the expansion, but it's two radio news reporters who were leaving a racetrack and pulled over because they saw this thing, this light coming towards them, comes down, and they actually see a physical craft that looks like like a home base plate. One of the guys was a huge baseball fan, so that's what he likened it to. But they actually saw the structure, they saw the aspects of the structure. Their story's really interesting, and they were both news reporters. One guy said he'd never believed in any of this stuff right. until he saw that. You know, you hear that so often. But uh, yeah, tons of UFO experiences in the triangle. We're not going to get into a lot of those. Well, yeah, like Greg said, the guy who recommended this topic to us, which was a great recommendation, obviously, there is so much to get into. That's why this is going to be a two-part. The second part will be in the expansion. And even then, I don't think we'll be able to cover everything, obviously. There's just so, so much. Yeah. And like you said, is there's no real boundary. Like there is, seems to be an epicenter where you can draw this triangle around it, but really it extends far out beyond that. And in that case, I mean, New England is filled with stories of the weird. Right. Well, some people argue that this is the heart of that the source of that weirdness, the beating heart spreading out. Yeah. But who knows? I mean, it does definitely seem to be a window area and we're going to get into some other phenomena like that now, like the, maybe the preservation of spirit in ghost forms, such as the redheaded hitchhiker. Yeah. Every collection of weirdness in the world needs a hitchhiker story. Right. Roadside hitchhiker ghost. Bridgewater Triangle is not a stranger to this phenomenon. And the one there is, is known as the redheaded hitchhiker. And a lot of people, I think, casually pass this off as more folklore. But the interesting thing is there was a, uh, an author who had actually gone around and collected over 200 accounts of the strange goings-ons. And in one of his favorite sections, he actually found his obituary, and even in his obituary it mentioned that specifically Ghost File Number 7 about the, red, oh, really? the red-headed hitchhiker was one of his favorites. And this guy was a fascinating character. He was a Harvard grad. Uh, his focus was in like archaeology, anthropology, ended up becoming a writer. His passion seemed to be the paranormal. What was his name? His name was Charles Turk Robinson. So let's back up. The red-headed hitchhiker of Route 44. He's kind of menacing, disheveled phantom, uh, dressed in a red plaid shirt, often seen with like a messy red beard. And this author, he wrote this book in 1984. It was a classic. It was called The New England Ghost Files, an authentic compendium of frightening phantoms. And yeah, so the ghost file number seven specifically is what we're talking about today. And that is the redheaded hitchhiker. And what I love about Robinson, you know, just like people like um, uh, Jenny Randles, he's a person who goes and talks to people in person, collects these stories. In this case, he even went back to the people three times to make sure that their stories were consistent interviewed tons of people, left out anyone that seemed like they were making it up. These are people, according to his, you know, learned techniques, were telling him the honest truth. And this was a smart dude. So let's go through a couple, I just have a couple of these accounts of this redheaded hitchhiker. This is the first witness of the ghost file number seven. Robinson calls him Joe. I saw a man's face outside the car pressed against the passenger side window. This was physically impossible. My car was traveling about 50 miles an hour. The face was looking in at me, grinning. I could see that the man had red hair and was wearing a red plaid shirt. I swerved off the highway and brought my car to a stop. But by that time, the man had vanished. After about 10 minutes, I finally calmed down enough to restart my car and drive home. That incident has left me shaken up for the past 25 years. So that encounter took place in the winter of 1969, and that was sort of average hitchhiker encounter, right? You see him, he's there. That'd be terrifying. Yeah. And that guy, 
he was familiar with the stories, but didn't believe them, right? Right. He was skeptical, and he just was not even thinking about it, trying to pick up his friend at the airport last minute in the winter, driving down the roads and past that specific spot on Route 44, and that's yeah. when the face appeared. Well, and the creepy thing about this this character, and there's oh, there's more stories we're not going to cover about him, but there's always this maniacal laughter that comes into play, or the, or the eerie smile. Oh, yeah. And it just makes it just that extra bit of creepiness. Like the grinning man. Yeah. What are you so happy about? You're a demon. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or you're dead. Maybe he enjoys it. He might. He's having a good time, it seems like. Yeah, he likes scaring people. Yeah. Eating off of innocence. <laughs> was there ever an account of a redheaded man who was killed along the roadside? I don't know. Who knows? I mean, it's one of these things where it's like, you know. It's very specific. Red beard, red haired, mm -hmm. flannel shirt wearing fella. I'm sure there's tons of stories that people just kind of made up after this. You know, you start to build onto the folklore. Yeah, people suggested that you hear more stories that are traditional hitchhiker legends like you're driving with three passengers, he'll appear in the fourth seat. Right. That kind of stuff. Or drive with your, or flash your headlights and he'll come out. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Hello. They tie it in from other common folklore of hitchhikers and they just lump in with this. Kind of makes it all seem discredited. Yeah. Um, but these were, the, these were the actual witness testimonies. So in the next story Robinson tells, it's of a woman named Barbara uh, who encountered the family in February of 1981. The woman was driving along Route 44 when suddenly she hit a man, fitting the description of the infamous hitchhiker. Red hair, red plaid shirt. Only when she hit the man, her car drove right through him. Ouch. There was no time to brake or even swerve the car. In a matter of seconds, I ran him over. I mean, I, I thought I had. Barbara stopped the car, thinking she had just killed someone. Only no one was there. Walking back to her car after thoroughly checking the road, Barbara heard something that chilled her to the bone. I heard this loud, horrible laughter coming from the woods to the side of the road, right near the spot where I thought I hit the man. The laughter was terrible. She got into her car and drove away, stunned. To her horror, after driving down Route 44 not even a mile, there was the man again, in the middle of the road. And again, she drove right through him. Again, she stopped the car, but this time she did not get out, only rolled down the car window. Again, she heard the laughter. At that point, the woman took off. Pretty creepy. And that kind of yeah. reminds you of the typical sort of phantom Too on standard. the road. I ran into him. He wasn't there. Right. Then down a mile down the road, he, they see him again. Right. He's coming for you. Again, with that grin and that laughter. Mm -hmm. Creepy. The last story, and maybe the most fantastical story that Robinson tells, is about a Swansea couple he calls Harry and Sheena Hansen. Harry and Sheena were driving Route 44 in October of 1984 when their car broke down. Harry told Sheena to stay in the car while he tried to find a payphone to call AAA road service. The man made his way down the dark road when he spotted what he described as a, quote, sloppy-looking guy with messy red hair sitting on the side of the road. The man asked the stranger if he knew where the closest payphone was. The stranger didn't answer. The man asked him again. The messy red-haired man only sat in silence, staring at him. So the man asked again, and again, and there was silence. One more time the man asked, and then he noticed what he described as an, quote, odd grin upon the stranger's face. The man asked the stranger if he was okay. Upon posing the question, the stranger's face changed. The man described the eerie nighttime encounter with the hitchhiker this way. Suddenly, the man's face got very strange. He stopped grinning. He twisted his mouth, and I noticed that there was something wrong with his eyes. 
They were all clouded over. No pupils or anything. Just blank and all white. It's terrifying. I began to feel weird and started to walk away from him. As I hurried away, I heard the man laughing. I turned around, but he was no longer there. I mean, I could no longer see him there, but I still heard the laughing. It was coming from just a few feet away from me, and the laughing kept switching locations. First in front of me, then behind me, then to the left of me. It was bizarre. The man ran back to the car in fright, only to find his wife standing outside of it, visibly terrified. She told her husband that after he left, she had turned on the car radio and was listening to a song, when to her horror, suddenly the song wasn't coming out of the radio anymore. A very creepy man's voice came out of the car's speakers instead. The voice taunted her, called her by name, all the while laughing hysterically. Wow, that's some pretty cool powers for that ghost. Pretty terrifying if that's true. I mean, definitely the most extreme story in, yeah. in the personal accounts that were reported to Robinson. I think he said that uh, he picked out the stories that he thought if they were unique enough that either they, these people could write you know, movies, essentially, or they must have been real because they just had a unique quality to them. And this one's definitely did. And again, he took all these accounts in person. He took all right. these reports from people, and he went back three times to each person to double-check, make sure that their stories seemed consistent and they seemed like credible witnesses. It's not from No Sleep on Reddit. Yeah, and again, Robinson, and I'll, I'll link his obituary because he sound, sounds like an awesome guy. Um, you know, he's an academic, first of all, which I wouldn't have guessed because paranormal writers usually think they're more hobbyists. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a Harvard-educated anthropologist, archaeologist, uh, and he got thrown into the world of the paranormal when he was writing for a paper, a newspaper, and was researching something for Halloween and actually found a poltergeist story from Hans Holzer, who was a pretty renowned paranormal researcher back in those times. And that kind of sucked him into it. It became sort of his passion. Um, but really interesting guy. Seemed like a really, really nice guy. Died kind of young, sadly, 55. But That's right. His hometown was Roboth, right? Exactly. That's, that, what, that's what pulled him into these stories of New England and Roboth in that triangle in particular. Before the, the southwest triangle. apex of the Bridgewater Triangle. Right. Before we knew of the triangle. Right. Interesting stuff. And, you know, maybe so much of this stuff happens in Roboth. Is it one of the earliest settlements in the country? 1643? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I... I thought that was kind of unique. I always love when there's personal experiences reported firsthand. Yeah. It always makes the stories more compelling. Definitely. Is that where the schoolhouse is? Where the haunted schoolhouse? That's in Middleborough. Oh, Middleborough. Okay. That was an interesting story. I mean, there's so many different hauntings and yeah. phenomena in this. I mean, it's crazy. It's off the charts, man. Off the charts. It is. Like, I, I had a whole list, and maybe we'll get some in the expansion, but I have like a creepy quick draw that's like anecdotes, stories from people in the area, but then I also have a quick list of all the different, I mean, even just in the town, oh, what was the name of it? It started with a T, but it's right in the middle of the triangle, I believe. But even just that one town had like a mental hospital, oh, yeah. a haunted schoolhouse or something, a, a bri- haunted bridge that's famously haunted with all these specific stories. It does seem like there is a large amount of phenomena in this Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can get into the expansion. I know we're going to do the story of that sort of monster demon dog that killed yeah. the ponies and was terrorizing the town. They had kids being escorted by officers with rifles mm-hmm. during this time period. Yeah, from it's actually from an original newspaper account. And, you know, the guy who reported the story initially said that the dog was this pretty much the size or larger than his, his Shetland ponies, that yeah. he had rip, ripped the throats out. We'll talk about that for sure. We've got other things we might get into here. The Camp Titty Cut sounds interesting, Jer. Oh, yeah. These are just part of the quick draw I was talking about. These okay. just different places. 
And of course, we're going to get into the occult activity. And the last thing I want to do on this episode is the schoolhouse spirits. <laughs> because like we mentioned before, I always love when you've got older accounts that come into play. And by the way, we definitely need to mention the site, the bridgewatertriangle.net, a great resource for a lot of stories and a lot of jumping off points for research. Yeah. Also have an interactive map in the show notes for people. You can get a look at some of the places within Google Maps to show you some of the points of interest and stuff. Awesome. Well, this this comes from Kristen Good. She was an Abington writer, which is part of the triangle. So she's right in there. And she wrote this article, Hey, Teacher, Leave Them Kids Alone. Clever. Yeah, Pink Floyd. And uh, it's an unusual Bridgewater Triangle haunting. And this takes place at the schoolhouse there in Middleborough. It's an old newspaper account. We at least have the, the records of the report. And according to an 1886 issue of the Boston Globe that published on January 27th, the Middleborough School was to be closed until, quote, the scholar's fright can be quieted or the mystery be explained, end quote. The ghost believed to be that of a young boy who died from traumatic injuries after a severe flogging had a reputation for helping children who were in danger of being punished by the teacher. Boston Globe, January 28, 1886. Miss Nancy Butler, a young woman living a short distance below the schoolhouse, tells her shopmates at the Straw Works that no longer ago than one week, the ghost escorted her while passing down the road by the schoolhouse late in the evening. She was frightened at the sight of the goblin, all in white, and ran, and the ghost pursued and, quote, chased me home, she declared excitedly. Many times the school bell has rung in broad daylight when no one was in the hallway at the bell rope. Stories are told of late, passers-by in the dead of night who have seen a light in the schoolroom, and at intervals the bell would ring out sharply, always one single stroke. Then the dim form of a boy dressed in white and carrying a lighted lamp would be seen to walk about in the schoolroom, and finally, seating himself at a desk, would place the lamp upon it and bend over as if in deep study. In the meantime, numberless stories are told of the pranks of the spirit of a boy said to have died soon after having received a severe flogging at the hands of a pedagogue. It is related that on several occasions in a single night, after the school had been closed for the Saturday holiday and over Sunday, when the schoolroom was open to the morning, the blackboards were found to be covered with elaborate designs in scroll work and lettering in a peculiar handwriting entirely different from anything seen on those boards at any other time. Sometimes an example of an arithmetic that had puzzled some dull scholar to the verge of desperation would thus be found clearly demonstrated upon the board in the morning and would be recognized by the scholar at once as intended for his or her benefit and would doubtless prevent some punishment from being inflicted. In this way, the ghost came to be recognized as a friend of the unfortunate but deserving scholar who stood in the wrath of a teacher inclined to be unjust or severe. So I kind of like that idea where this, this spirit of the boy, if that's what it is, in fact, is answering questions of arithmetic for the students that are in the class who can't quite figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love the idea of the coming to school and finding scrawled on the board arithmetic that uh, even adults couldn't figure out at the time, right? That struggled to... F- understand right. this, you know, arithmetic, and then the what undecipherable or unknown language scrolls. Yeah, or, interesting scroll I mean, It's an interesting story yeah. from a story that comes from what, like the 1800s? 1886. Yeah. Boston Globe. 
But yeah, interesting. I mean, there's there's a lot of ghost stories, especially with the schoolhouses in the area. There's another schoolhouse. I won't get into that story, but that's one of my favorites where there's basically a contemporary modern teacher that walks up just checking out this historical schoolhouse is one of the first in the country and looks in the window just to check out what it looks like inside and sees a class being taught in, of course, all old garb, period. Yeah. Right, and she's like, what? And so she thinks it's a reenactment and she goes up to the door, it's locked, and she goes back and looks in and they're still there for a moment. But the teacher is looking at her with a bizarre look on her face as they all, class, children, and teacher all just slowly fade away. Really, I mean, just cool yeah. story, you know, who knows? But Very yeah, cool. so much here in the Triangle. Guys, go to the Bridgewater Triangle. Head down to Massachusetts. There's a lot of stuff to see. Absolutely. Yeah, if you guys want more stories, definitely check out some of the books we used were um, The Creature from the Bridgewater Triangle and Other Odd Tales from New England. That was Bill Russo. The New England Ghost Files, Charles Turk Robinson. That's a great resource. They had the hitchhikers. Yeah, great personal accounts. Mysterious America, The Ultimate Guide to the Nation's Weirdest Wonders, Strange Spots, and Creepiest Creatures by Lauren Coleman. That was the book that started off the Bridgewater Triangle as a phenomenon, as a recognized phenomenon. And documentary for more, um, and we'll definitely be referencing a lot in the expansion, is The Bridgewater Triangle by Aaron Cadeau and Manny Famalor. Yeah, great resources. There's There'll be more in our notes that we pulled from that we haven't mentioned here, but... Uh, Definitely check out the episode notes, guys. There's a lot of good information in there, photos we referenced. Yeah, so come our way. Check it out there. Yeah. So is the Bridgewater Triangle a legit phenomenon, at least insofar as when it comes to the occult activity? Yes. We're going to get into that in the expansion, and we have a detective we're going to be covering who dealt with some pretty intense homicides and strange cult activity in the forest. And yeah. this is what he had to say about the Triangle. The Bridgewater Triangle is real. There's no, there's no question in my mind. The weirdest things happen here, the most unexplained things happen here, and you can feel it in that state forest. I dare anybody to go there in that middle of the state forest at midnight or in the dark and tell me if you don't sense something that you don't sense anywhere else. I can't be in the state forest at night, even with a gun. I was uncomfortable in the state forest. Yeah, so it's all real. That was Detective Alan Alves, and I believe him. And we're going to hear more from him in the expansion. Get your butts over there. Get over there. Learn about the occult and what's going on in the Bridgewater Triangle. Some of the creepier stuff. It's going to be an interesting conversation, and we hope you join us. We do. We love you. If you're not an expansion member yet, you can click on the uh, big red button on our website to join the expansion. And uh, thank you to all those who have and help support the show. I think we have some of them to thank, don't we, guys? I think we do. Okay. There it is. Thank you to Dave Bowen. Dave Bowen, yeah. All right. Dave, it reminds me of David Bowie. I'm sure he's thought of that before. Thank you to Quinn. Quinn. Welcome to the hole. Medicine man or woman. Spencer Noel, thank you. Spencer. New expansion member, Katarnia Bianchi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Katarnia. Katarnia. Welcome. Yeah. Megan, welcome into the expansion. Whoop, whoop. Megan, thank you. We love you. Kasana Harrison, hello. Hey, is it Kasna? Kasna. Kasna. Kasna Harrison. Wait, is a Z. From Down Under, I believe. Almost did it, but I didn't. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Tanya Haverkamp. Woo, Haverkamp. Welcome to the expansion. Pitch that tent. Let's go camping. Excuse right. me. Have a camp. Have a camp. Wow. Uh, Mike McCoy. Hello, hello, sir. Welcome hey, Mike. To Welcome to the bridge, Mr. McCoy. Dana Luth Barnes. Welcome, Dana. Dana, thanks for joining. Happy to have you. What a cougar growl there. <laughs> Susanna M, welcome to the expansion. Susanna, welcome to the hole. What's up? We hope you stay for a while. Clara Bell, ring-a-ding, welcome in. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Desiree Houston. 
Desiree. Ooh. Hi there. Thanks, Des. Desi. Andrew Copland. Come on down, sir. Andrew. Ooh. Great name. Is he from Copland? That's my middle name. Great movie. Steph Whitney. Hey, Steph. What's up, Stephanie? Hey. Welcome to the expansion. Michael Calabrese. Hey, from high school. How's hey, it going? Is it a high school guy? I think it must be. It might be another Mike Calabrese, but I think so. In any case, you're great, Mike. Thanks for being here. You are a legend among men. Leah Peltier. Thank you and welcome into the expansion, my friend. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Yes, made of pelts. Uh, <laughs> earmuffs for the children. Big Titty E69420. What? Welcome oh, in. That's a bit much. That paints a picture. Welcome to the hole. We've got room. Thank you for splattering your verbal vomit all over <laughs> our eardrums. <laughs> Greg Klein. Hi, my friend. Welcome in. Greg AK. Welcome the expansion. Greg, thanks for coming. We love you. Ah, yes. Old Simon Wordmuller von Elg. Welcome, ah, sir. Simon, Simon von, Elg. von Elg. Full of stories, that man. Yes, indeed. We'll Welcome. be getting to those. John Geiger. Oh, count that radiation, my friend. I knew a John Geiger in school. It was John Geig. Oh, that's right. Actually, the guy who did the illustration of the Pukawaji, his name uh-huh. is John Geig. Oh, what a synchronicity. Doubt it was the same one. Welcome, John. Welcome, John. Welcome to the whole, sir. Happy to have you. Jesse Olson. Ooh. Works hello, hello. At the Daily Planet. Spider-Man <laughs> assistant, Jesse Olson. Sounds Nordic. Olson. Yeah. And thank you to all of the expansion members who moved from Patreon into the expansion. Thanks for coming home. Yeah. You belong there. Yeah, this is our home. No more money to the patron. They steal our, our hard-earned money. They don't steal it. We're joking. No, but they provide a good service, but... <laughs> it's time for us to move on to something a little bit more that is ours. Yes, break the boundaries. So, yeah, if, if you want to help support the whole a little bit more, you can definitely end your patron membership. Either way, it's not like we're forcing people, but it definitely, yeah. we get more of the yeah. actual money if you... Yeah, quick uh, quick notes of information. If you are on Patreon and you are generous enough to be donating above the basic $5 expansion level, uh, we can't do that yet in the expansion on our site. It's not an option available on the platform I've built it on, but it's coming soon. Sweet. So you guys are welcome to come over now and upgrade later, whatever you want to do. stay over Patreon for a little longer. <laughs> in any case, we thank you guys so much. Um, people did ask... There's a couple things I want to say about this new expansion experience that I built with my blood, sweat, and tears. It does not have uh, a forum yet. We're going to have a community forum at some does point. Have, you can leave comments. You can leave comments on pages, but there's no community page, right? Right. On Patreon, you can just post like, right. to the community page. So we're going to have that coming. There is a Facebook community page if you're interested in joining that, talking with other right. holders. The other thing is, oh, it is not an app. So for people that have asked, uh, I wish we had the money or the technical know-how to build an app. Yeah, it's not an app. But you can put it on your homepage and exactly. it, it's like an app. If you have an Android or iPhone, you can set our expansion.beliefhole.com website as a bookmark on your homepage. So it looks just like an app icon. And you mean on your phone, right? What we should do on our website, and we'll have this, guys, is we'll have an example of how to do that. We'll also have an example of how to put our feed into your, your favorite app that you use, whether it's CastBox, um, Spotify, iTunes. We could do a little quick demonstration video. Yeah, that's what I was going to do. Yeah. Um, anyway, guys, we hope you enjoyed this journey into the triangle. Yes. Yeah, come on over to Expansion. Yeah, guys, get on in it. Check out all the weirdness, craziness, and uh, yeah, come party with us in the hole. Cowabunga, dude. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Join Cowabunga. us there. All right, guys, we love you. We'll see you in the hole. We'll see you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.